Yes, April is almost done. VegCast. But here we come with VegCast 81. VegCast. A full menu from first to last. VegCast. That's right, getting in under the wire for April. We are here with... Another full menu of vegetarian podcastery, and this time out, we're going to be talking with Tracy McWhorter about her new book, By Any Greens Necessary. Uh, Tracy is one of the founders of BlackVegetarians.org and is a new book that is pitched specifically to black women, although also black men and people of all colors and genders can benefit uh, from a lot of her insights into the health benefits as well as the ethical benefits of a vegan diet. We also have a science fact coming up for you about the adulterants in our meat supply and the problems with uh, getting those out of them and how those problems are sometimes swept under the rug even when the meat is rejected by a foreign country and served to American consumers. Uh, We also will have a music track for you from VegCast fave Amanda Rogers. That's all coming up this time, so I invite you, as usual, to sit back, relax, and crank up your MP3 playing device as we deliver to you this 81st edition of... Okay, we'll get to that interview in a moment, but I just wanted to note that in my alternative capacity as a blogger for Earth to Philly, I was invited to the Sustainable last week, the uh, event put on by Sustainable Business Network of Philadelphia to uh, promote sustainability, all things green and so forth. And out of many of this type of thing that I've been to, green-oriented, green-themed events, this was the first one where the food served actually approached uh, the goals and ideals of sustainability. And, uh, uh, of course, from my vantage point, uh, any event that I would conceive that had to do with uh, sustainable, uh, you know, anti-global warming uh, kind of goals would have an all-vegan menu. This was not all-vegan, but it did have significant uh, vegan offerings, significant presence of veganism, things marked vegan. Uh, it had vegan dips. I mean, in addition to salsa and hummus, there was a tofuti dip. There was a nettle pizza. There was tempeh burritos and uh, various things like that, and that's thanks to Cosmic catering that did the catering for the event. So I just wanted to give them a big up right here in this forum and say uh, maybe this indicates that the uh, the environmental movement is starting to wake up to the fact that you can't be an environmentalist and eat meat. Maybe we will keep tabs on this, so stay tuned, and maybe it will be confirmed in the future, or maybe there will be some new development that completely scuttles it. But in the meantime, let's get to our interview right now on the new book, By Any Greens Necessary. Okay, right now, joining us by phone for VegCast is Tracy McCorder, the author of By Any Greens Necessary from Chicago Review Press. Tracy, welcome to VegCast. Thank you, Vance. It's great to be here. And it's great to have you, and I wanted to talk to you about By Any Greens Necessary especially and about your whole uh, kind of journey 
to being a vegan and being a kind of a spokesperson for veganism. And if we could just start, you you share some of uh, the your path, your history, your journey there uh, in your introduction. And I believe it started basically uh, with a talk by Dick Gregory. That's right. That's correct. I was a sophomore at Amherst College in Massachusetts. This was 1986, and our black student union brought Dick Gregory to talk about the state of black America, and instead he decided to talk about the plate of black America. So he spent about two and a half hours talking about how unhealthily most black folks eat, and I was kind of trying to tune him out because I had no interest in vegetarianism, and I had a bad experience when I was introduced to vegetarianism in seventh grade. I attended Sidwell Friends School, which is where the Obama girls are going now, so people may know about that school in D.C. I attended that from third through twelfth grade, and in seventh grade, teachers decided that our class camping trip should be all vegetarian. So this was my first... uh, um, This was my introduction to vegetarianism. I thought it was a horrible idea. So I actually, as a seventh grader, wrote a petition and tried to get my classmates to sign it. And I was overruled. Only a couple of my friends signed it. So fast forward about seven years, and I'm a sophomore at Amherst, and I hadn't thought about vegetarianism since. And had I known that the talk would have been about that subject, I definitely would not have gone. So Dick Gregory was pretty smart. So what really got me, what really caused me to tune in was when he started to trace the path of a hamburger from a cow on a factory farm to a slaughterhouse to a fast food place to a heart attack. And he traced it very graphically. And I don't know if you know, he became a vegetarian uh, originally because of his activism in the civil rights movement and um, practice of nonviolence. So um, he had been, uh, he was a nutrition guru by the time he came to my college in 86, but I didn't know that at the time. So I just kind of sat there in shock about how, listening to how he was talking about the food that I had been eating all my life and and had never really thought was really unhealthy for me, even though I had gained 25 pounds my freshman year, you know, 10 pounds past the freshman 15. (laughs) So that's kind of how he he sparked an interest. I immediately gave up hamburgers and hot dogs for a week after his lecture and then decided he was crazy. Nobody gives up meat, but I couldn't get what he said out of my mind. So that summer when I went home, um, I went to the Library of Congress in D.C. and to um, the main public library books that I could get out on vegetarianism. And me, my middle sister, and my mother read them together that summer, including Dick Gregory's book that he wrote, I believe, in 76, Dick Gregory's Natural Guide for Folks Who Like to Eat. Uh, I may be butchering the title. I apologize. But, that's okay. Um, that's kind of... That's kind of what happened. Um, we read those books, and we became um, convinced that eating meat was actually unhealthy. And so we became vegetarian by the end of the summer, or had decided to become vegetarian. I went to Kenya the following semester. Um, I was already accepted into a study abroad program, mm-hmm. and it was very difficult for me to kind of navigate how to become a, a vegetarian, how to be a new vegetarian in Nairobi, Kenya, and the other um, parts of Kenya. So I really kind of decided that I would table it 
until I got back home to D.C. And the second semester, I went to Howard University and discovered that right up the street from Howard was an enclave of black vegetarians and vegans who were actually pioneers in the city. They started the first all-vegan health food stores and cafes in the cities in in the history of the nation's capital. And there was um, classes, cooking classes, lectures, cafes, carryouts, just a, a thriving community that I knew nothing about. And so I just immersed myself in that community along with my mother and um, became a confident vegetarian by the time I went back to Amherst to complete my um, senior year. Yeah, so that's how it started for me. Right. And, and um, I have to say, Dick Gregory, obviously known for his, uh, you know, being politically outspoken, I mean, among vegetarians, he's also known uh, as a famous vegetarian, but he, uh, he kind of tied the two together, it sounds like, the, the concept the personal is political for you, and I, and I do kind of see uh, you carrying that uh, forward somewhat in the book. You seem to be talking um, specifically to, to black people, maybe a little more to black women uh, than, than men, but uh, you're bringing forward this, this kind of message that it, it does kind of matter what the, the choices that you make. It's not just a question of, uh, the, of taste preferences or, or what, your, you know, what your grandmother used to make. I mean, you, you talk about how that was, uh, it was kind of hard for her to, to get over you not eating her cooking. I think a lot of, uh, a lot of us of, of whatever background can probably <laughs> identify that, with that. Right. Yeah. Um, but, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's true. It's it's uh, it's not easy to to go back to your family once you've made that decision. And and you know, your grandma. I've had we used to have Sunday dinner after church over at my grandmother's house, and she was a phenomenal cook. I loved her food, traditional, um, you know, soul food, and, and um, because that was an that was an occasion kind of um, dinner that we would have on Sundays. Not our regular everyday food, but definitely fried chicken, macaroni and cheese, potato salad, pound cake, all that good stuff. Mm-hmm. And we looked forward to it. And she loved cooking for us, so that was hard to um, to to have to tell her that we couldn't eat her food. But my oldest sister. Actually, it never changed um, and became a vegetarian or vegan. So she got down and she ate it. So my grandmother loved that. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't like the whole family. Um, but also, I I do target black women, you know. And of course, eating plant based foods is and eating more of them or eating them exclusively is healthy for everybody. But I target black women because we. Uh, there, there are many millions of us who are already um, vegetarian and vegan, but there are many more of us who uh, a health crisis right now. We are actually the unhealthiest group demographic in the country right now. We're the most overweight. Eighty percent of us are overweight. Fifty percent of us are obese. We have the highest um, incidences of, of uh, breast cancer. We die younger from breast cancer, gets diagnosed later but we die younger, Um, stroke, heart disease, diabetes. One in four black women um, are said that, you know, it's said that they will get diabetes by the time they're in their 50s. I mean, that's just unacceptable. And these are diet-related diseases. These are preventable diseases. And so I I really um, took Malcolm X's by any means necessary phrase that he popularized, and I turned it 
into by any means necessary because I wanted to convey urgency in our communities about our health and that we can reverse this crisis by eating healthier plant-based foods. So, and, and, and uh, Alvinia Fulton was a mentor to Dick Gregory. She's actually the main reason that he changed his diet because you know he used to be obese, I think over 300 pounds at one point. Right. And Alvinia Fulton started the first health food store on the south side of Chicago in the 1950s. So, you know, there's a long tradition tradition of black folks being pioneers in the health food communities, in the health food movement in this country. Um, thank goodness. And I feel like I'm, you know, kind of a traveler on, their, on that path, I'm, you know. And so, yes, I'm definitely an activist around this issue and trying to reverse this crisis in our communities. Well, let me just ask you, because um, you do also mix in a certain amount of animal uh, issues, I mean, about the, the care of animals, animal welfare or treatment mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and sometimes it, it, it seems like you're, you're borrowing a little bit of the moral uh, aspect of, of a kind of an animal rights point of view, but you're, you're always mixing it in with uh, the health thing. And you, were you uh, kind of trying to walk a fine line there by uh, advocating something that would that would get people thinking about where their food's coming from and, and who it's coming from, but at the same right. time making it something where they're going to be able to see results from from getting on this kind of lifestyle. Well, it's a good question. Actually, I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it that way, but um, you know, like maybe walking a fine line. I guess what I was trying to do was to reach people from different points of view, like how they might enter into eating mm-hmm. healthier plant, plant-based foods, eating more plant-based foods. So for me, it started because of health. That was my point of entry. Um, it took years for me to actually understand about um, the ethics of using animals for our own uses, for our mm-hmm. own pleasures, basically. Um, and I resisted that for years until, and I kind of evolved into that. So that wasn't my point of entry, but I'm definitely there now and have been for a number of years. So, and I know folks who, whose point of entry was nonviolence and the, the, um, humane, the, the more humane treatment of animals, like the Gregory. So, you know, he kind of combined both, but his point of entry was nonviolence against animals. So people come at it different ways, and so I just kind of saw it as a way, approach, um, as a way to approach it that's not real, that either or, um, but an and two. Right. Okay. So that's kind of the approach that I took, and I also talked some about you know the in terms of, of the planet. So, and people come at it that way as well. So, mm-hmm. you know, all of those things are all of those things are ways for people to think about changing what's on their plate and being healthier for themselves, the planet, and for for us. Let, let me just ask, as I mean, somebody that uh, I mean, you've worked with kind of the animal-oriented establishment with the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, um, mm-hmm. and you've uh, actually seen kind of. Uh, in the corridors of power, I believe you worked on uh, the case against the. Was it against the USDA? Am I remembering right. that right? Mm-hmm. Uh, did you get any particular kind of insight or uh, have any observations from that experience 
in, that are allowing you now to kind of come out to uh, the people in your community, come out and kind of deliver this message? Well, you know, um, definitely that experience at PCRM was very um, pivotal in my life. But my sister and I actually started um, a Black Vegetarian's website in 1999. Mm -hmm. So, and, and that was the first online resource targeting Black um, vegetarians or people who were interested in vegetarianism, eating more vegetarian foods. So. I actually started working for PCR, PCRM uh, a couple of years after that, mm -hmm. and I have been a vegan now for about 20 years. So, um, I, you know, I've been doing this, doing this work and promoting this way of eating for some time. And when I, when I uh, started working with PCRM, I believe it was, um, two, I was working with them 2000, 2001. Um, that's when I actually started to watch videos about animal, about cruelty to animals. That's actually what changed my mind about, or actually the reason I evolved into believing in the ethics of treating animals more humanely. So in that way, PCRM was very pivotal mm -hmm. in, in my development. And um, I have to say that a lot of folks that I worked with there were into it, were into plant-based foods because of the um, animal rights or animal advocacy um, points of entry, right. but they were not necessarily eating healthfully, and that shocked <laughs> me. I mean, there were folks who were drinking Cokes, there were folks who were smoking cigarettes, and I just, I just couldn't understand how they could be all for the health of animals but not really care as much about their own health. Right. So there was a me there for me that I just, couldn't, I just couldn't wrap my mind around. So for me, like I said, it's never been an either-or. It's definitely both of those things are important um, to me. And so, yes, right. it was a very pivotal experience for me. And also they do... Excellent um, research. They're doing a lot more of it now with their diabetes study. At that time, I did work with them on the, um, the lawsuit to the USDA. I was working directly with their legal counsel, um, Mindy Curson, and that was very exciting. It was a very exciting time, and we actually were able to expose what was happening. So there was also the health component, for sure. And actually, Asian Americans and Latinos have a very high rate of um, so-called lactose intolerance as well. So it's, you know, it, it's, there are a lot of folks that the USDA, the right. U.S. government, is discounting when they tell us that we should drink um, three glasses of milk a day, not yeah. just black folks. So you just have to try harder. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Lactate and do all of these other things so that they can, so that they want, their profits won't be affected. Right. And even when I was in graduate school getting my master's in public health nutrition, one of my professors told me that she worked on that Got Milk campaign. Mm -hmm. And I was shocked. Um, and, you know, I should not have been because, you know, that's, that's something you would hire a nutritionist to do to help them promote milk. Why right. not? So... You know, I learned a lot from that class and just kind of how, how they were able to, how that campaign was able to be so successful. So um, I've kind of seen both sides of it. So that, right. so that experience in graduate 
school and, and having professors who mainly pr promoted meat and dairy foods was an eye-opener for me as well. Well, uh, we're about out of time, but let me just uh, ask, as somebody that's been kind of in the thick of it in terms of vegetarian uh, groups like PCRM and, and right there in Washington and everything, uh, from your vantage point there, um, you know, the, the whole vegetarian animal rights movement is, is perceived by the mainstream as a very uh, white kind of suburban yuppie uh, trend or movement or so forth. Um, but there's always been this, uh, this hardcore of, uh, of people of other races that are usually kind of forming their own communities and keeping things going that way. Do you have any, <laughs> is there any way that, uh, that we could, that we can work to make the whole movement more just multi, multi-varied, multicolored, multi-everything? Um, wow, how long do we have? <laughs> <laughs> That's a, that's, a, that's a loaded question, but I will say that what I, what I tell folks when they ask me, well, you know, why aren't there more black folks right. into vegetarianism and how, we, how can we get them into it or the animal rights movement, I say that from my experience, um, my background over these last 20 years is that, you know, I'm in settings where black folks were the pioneers in these movements, so I don't see a lack. Mm -hmm. Of that, and so I say, you know, well, how are how are you know, are you promoting it among white people? Um, and because I promote it among black folks, but I speak everywhere, and you know, I promote it to whoever asked me to come and talk. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it's not really for me to. For me, the question is, you know, promote it to whoever your audience is, and if you feel that there is a lack of um, people, of groups, of other groups, then you need to talk to the group that you're in about how to do something about that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you see what I'm saying? Sure. I mean, I think a lot of, uh, of white vegetarian speakers think, well, I'll just stick with the, the people that I know how to talk to because if I go to talk to people of another culture, of another race, uh, I don't want them to think that I'm you know, talking down to them or telling them from my position as uh, somebody who has a certain privilege uh, that they should do whatever I do because, uh, you know, I may not be able to understand them. I think there's there's always going to be some barriers like that, um, but, I, but I'm hopeful that we're, we're finding ways to kind of knock those down as we go along. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's the case. I mean, in my own experience, I've worked with, you know, I've worked with different types of groups, different ages, different um, um, classes. So it's just based on folks, uh, the comfort level that you have and in, in, um, in the authority that you feel within yourself about your message, mm -hmm. because that's the issue and not kind of um, being the food police, but meeting folks where they are whoever you're talking to, whatever their background, and being passionate. And that's really all you can do. Share what you know, share what you've experienced, and then let folks decide for themselves. And if you come in with that kind of, of attitude, I think that people can sense that you're genuine and, and that you are trying to share information that could benefit them and that the rest is up to them. And that's kind of my approach to it. And, you know, the, the, the racial issues, the class issues are there in every in every aspect of American culture. So, of course, it's not going to be any different when it comes to animal rights and veganism. Right. But it's, so then it becomes a personal how you approach folks when you go out and share your message. 
Great. Well, you've uh, certainly uh, made an impact already, and you're getting out there uh, with this book and sharing that. Is there anything, anything else on the horizon for, uh, for Tracy McWhorter that we should know about or that we should watch for? Um, absolutely. There are, there's so many things that I want to do. I'm a writer and so I have lots of other books that, um, you know, about this message mm-hmm. of healthy eating that, uh, I plan to write. Um, and also I'd like to do a vegan, um, TV show. Cool. Um, I'd like to do a radio show, lots of things. So I would suggest people just follow, keep, keep in touch with me on byanygreensnecessary.com and, and contact me and let me know, um, how I can help in any way. Great. All right. That's, uh, that is By Any Greens Necessary. It's from uh, Chicago Review Press. And uh, Tracy, I've had a, a blast talking with you, and I've uh, learned a few things, and I hope uh, that uh, we'll be able to talk to you again sometime. But uh, until that point, thanks for joining us on VegCast. Thanks, I really enjoyed it. Talk okay. to you soon. All right. Talk to you later.
That is Amanda Rogers from her album Heartwood. That is a song called Operator. And right now, as we are almost pushing the 30-minute mark, we are going to turn right away to science. Our science fact for this VegCast is growing concern over marketing tainted beef. Now, as you know, occasionally on the science fact, we present a report or some other story that is not specifically a study in a peer-reviewed scientific journal. This is one of those. It's about an inspection report, an audit from the Inspector General of the Food Safety and Inspection Service of the USDA. And uh, we're just going to read a summary of this report that was in USA Today. Beef containing harmful pesticides, veterinary antibiotics, and heavy metals is being sold to the public because federal agencies have failed to set limits for the contaminants or adequately test for them a federal audit finds. A program set up to test beef for chemical residues, quote, is not accomplishing its mission of monitoring the food supply for dangerous substances, which has resulted in meat with these substances being distributed in commerce, says the audit by the U.S. Department of Agriculture's Office of Inspector General. The health effects on people who eat such meat are, quote, a growing concern, the audit adds. Uh, the story continues a little further down. The FSIS said in a written statement that the agency has agreed with the inspector general on corrective actions and will work with the FDA and EPA to prevent residues or contaminants from entering into commerce. Even when the inspection service does identify a lot of beef with high levels of pesticide or antibiotics, it often is powerless to stop the distribution of that meat because there is no legal limit for those contaminants. In 2008, for example, Mexican authorities rejected a U.S. beef shipment because its copper levels exceeded Mexican standards, the audit says, but because there is no U.S. limit, the FSIS had no grounds for blocking the beef's producer from reselling the rejected meat in the United States. And uh, one more little detail. Some contamination is inadvertent, such as pesticide residues in cows that drink water fouled by crop runoff. Other contaminants, such as antibiotics, often are linked to the use of those chemicals in farming. They're linked basically by being those exact chemicals. I don't know why they used the word linked there, that that is what they are. They are the antibiotics that are given repeatedly uh, to healthy animals throughout the entire factory farm system in America. For example, the audit says veal calves often have higher levels of antibiotic residue because ranchers feed them milk from cows treated with the drugs. Overuse of the antibiotics help create antibiotic-resistant strains of diseases. Now, we all know the drill there that the meat farmers in America are just using tons of antibiotics that uh, we actually need to keep strong in order to treat diseases that humans get, but uh, they're just going ahead and using that them rather than uh, give the animals adequate room so they don't get diseases. Uh, it's cheaper for them to just keep on pumping them with drugs, uh, so that uh, they don't have to address a lot of these uh, problems 
that uh, they're causing. And uh, there's, again, no little to no oversight of this whole thing. We see the same thing with the FSIS in general as we do uh, with the situation with recalls when uh, the USDA identifies uh, something that is contaminated, uh, often with fecal matter from animals. Uh, they are also powerless to do anything about it other than advise the company that they should recall the meat. And uh, the takeaway from this is the same as uh, in some of the previous science facts, but just bears underlining right now for anyone who may be tuning in late. And that is that even here in 2010, uh, the safety of our food is uh, in a precarious situation uh, when it comes to animal products uh, because we have such entrenched interests in our government uh, who come directly out of the meat and dairy industry, writing laws and uh, keeping everything on, uh, on the balance sheet in favor of the corporations that are abusing animals and abusing the public essentially by feeding them contaminated meat and animal products. And it's even now gotten to the point where uh, U.S. consumers are being fed meat that does not meet the standards of Mexico. Just something for you to think about when I read you the... Science Fact. Okay, and listening back to that uh, science fact, I noticed that in reading the story, at at least a couple of points, I opened a quote uh, and failed to close it. I said quote and then uh, read the quoted material but did not say when I was uh, closing the quote. And I hate it when people do that. So right here, I'm closing quote, unquote, unquote. And before we go, I just wanted to uh, alert Everybody, I don't usually get into the minutia of uh, Philadelphia events and happenings, but there is a new group in Philadelphia, an advocacy group uh, called the Peace Advocacy Network that uh, has just started up, and I have spoken with one of their representatives uh, who assures me that their eventual intent is uh, to take this whole thing national, so I'm letting everybody know out there, the Peace Advocacy Network. We're going to be hearing more from them and more about them on VegCast, hopefully, as we go forward. So watch for that. But as for now, VegCast 81 is done. Okay, as we are closing up shop on VegCast 81, I want to thank my guest, Tracy McWhorter, for uh, talking with us about Buy Any Greens Necessary and Attendant Issues. I want to thank Amanda Rogers for letting me play her music on VegCast. And, of course, I want to thank you for downloading and or subscribing VegCast. Of course, you can subscribe at iTunes. We will be back in May with two podcasts. Until then, please get out there and live like you mean it.